0: Welcome to the History with Jackson podcast, and today we are talking with Dr. Andrew W.M. Smith. So, hi Andrew, how are you doing?
1: Hi Jackson, very well, thank you.
0: Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to have you on this podcast, and thank you very much for coming on. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so, firstly, um, what 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 do you do uh, as a historian?
1: Um, so I, I work at the University of Chichester uh, and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Contemporary History and Politics. Um, most of the time I work on the uh, French and Francophone world um, and uh, a lot on uh, French history. Uh, I'm really interested in ideas of, I guess you could say resistance understood quite broadly, about the way that people face up to the structures around them, how they define themselves uh, in you know, in relationship to the state. And that's led me down a lot of interesting paths to look at, uh, you know, Second World War resistance, uh, to look at uh, the end of French Empire, um, to look at uh, the region and the state as well. So try and find different ways that people um, are able to, uh, to kind of understand the world around them and their relationship to structures of power.
0: Yeah, I definitely think there there's some real key themes that have come through in all your teaching that we've had for the past three years, and I find them quite interesting as well but how did this
1: become your area of expertise? Um, well, it's one of the interesting things. I, I never uh, I never knew that I wanted to, to study French history. Um, I did, obviously, history as an undergrad uh, when I went to university, but I hadn't done uh, French language at, um, at the equivalent of A level, advanced higher in Scotland. I did, I did higher French, which would be about uh, an AS level or a GCSE type thing, um, but uh, I, yeah, I never took it any further and one of the things I found is just when I was studying at a university it was just one of these things that the, the more of the modules I took, the more of the lectures I worked with I just seemed to find uh, the French stuff most compelling And but also my laziness came into play as well because uh, one of the difficulties I had is that um, I did. I worked a lot uh, when I was at university had a lot of different jobs on the go at the same time and I found that I often kept quite irregular hours shall we say <laughs> um, so when I used to try and go get reading from the library I used to go and find that almost everything was gone and out the stuff I wanted to look at except for the stuff in French, <laughs> so I had to kind of try and reteach myself French a bit from that kind of uh, uh, you know higher French, just to try and get back into it, so that I could uh, essentially still have some uh, reading to use for my uh, for my essays. Um, but uh, that that was that was really the way into it in terms of studying uh, French. And then I wrote my uh, dissertation, my undergraduate dissertation. I wrote on on French history. Um, I decided to write it about wine. Um, I had a chat uh, with a guy who uh, still teaches up at St Andrews, uh, who's a very good friend, a guy called uh, Stephen Tyre. Um, I spoke to him and I said, look, I, I want to do something on French history. And he said, okay, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, you know, I'm, I like wine. And I did, um, I'd did. i actually done a qualification in wine when I was uh, at high school um, in the summer holidays. My dad was uh, was a salesman who worked in a lot of different things. He worked in... Uh, uh, he worked for Rothmans and he worked at uh, Scottish Newcastle Brewers, but eventually became uh, a, a wine merchant. Um, and I did it through his work, this uh, um, certificate in uh, wines and spirits. And so I had probably a, a kind of advanced and educated palate, but one that I probably couldn't afford to satisfy as a student, <laughs> and probably still can't. Um, but I decided that I'd like to, to do something about wine, to put that knowledge to um, to use. So I tried to find places to look for uh, how to engage with, with wine and French history um, and Stephen Tyre's advice was well you know what, what what kind of things could you look at he said well let's have a start he said what's your what's your favourite wine what's your go-to bottle and my favourite wine has always been uh, uh, Fitou, that's the appellation that I tend to to, to go towards um, now Fitou is a, a kind of rustic red uh, from the south of France from the Languedoc and um, it's produced in the Oud um, and I got really interested in that region and just looking at the kind of, um, I don't know, the kind of possibilities in the background to what was going on in that region and the way that the wine was produced. Uh, and yeah, I've just become fascinated by it ever since. And of course, that's then what I wrote that dissertation on. It's then what I went on and did a PhD on uh, and what I wrote my first book on, where the uh, the wine growers of the Languedoc um, and some of the ways in which they faced up to, to kind of big changes in the, the French economy and the global economy as well. That she sounds really
0: interesting. I didn't know that you uh you'd learnt French through basically having no sources left in the library. I think that's quite funny actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I've noticed your first the first book you wrote a book on wine earlier before mm-hmm. your academic piece, so I found that quite quite cool as well.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a funny one. My uh I, I basically when I was doing the PhD, my wife was working for a, a small publishing company. And uh uh, they produced like gift books and all these kind of things and they tried to uh, they were putting together what a series they called pocket Bibles um, one of my friends actually wrote the football pocket Bible and I had some other friends wrote kind of things as well um, but they needed someone to write the wine pocket Bible um, and so uh, it didn't pay very well but uh, it was one of <laughs> these things I thought was a useful experience to try and kind of put some of those ideas down um, but it was a fun thing to do, uh, a little kind of gift book that I produced yeah, Which is certainly not academic. <laughs> um, but yeah.
0: So, today I've asked you to come on to the podcast, talk about your paper, Je suis Socialiste et Cains, Rugby, Wine and Socialism in the Ode, since 1976. So, firstly, what and where is the Ode?
1: Sure, yeah. Well, so uh, in France, um, the uh, the country is divided up into departments, départements. Um, departments are a bit like, in a British context, we would understand councils, you know. So a department would be the equivalent of West Sussex, for example. Um, and the Oud is a department of France. Um, in terms of where it is in France, it's right down south um, on the, the coast, towards the border with Spain, near the Pyrenees. Um, and it's part of what we tend to call the Languedoc. Uh, Recently, not super interesting, but there was uh, a reorganization of French regions um, and it's now part of the region of Occitanie, and this kind of links back to the idea of its its regional identity. Um, so it's right down there in the south of France, uh, it's a very sunny place. Um, the, uh, in terms of its economy, it's been dominated by, um, by wine um, for, uh, for quite a long time. Um, it's, uh, it's a beautiful place, uh, I'd very much recommend uh, recommend a visit. Um, there'll be places you know, like, uh, like Carcassonne um, is a, a very famous town, of course a very famous rugby town as well um but uh people will have seen pictures of carcassonne of course because it has its um cité medieval uh, the kind of medieval walled city uh which was um you know kind of uh, rebuilt in the 19th century by Violette le duc um and it's an absolutely beautiful picturesque place uh that's definitely worth a, definitely worth a look um worth a visit at some point
0: okay and and what are the differences between the south and north because the way i can i've kind of seen it is the south is like the north of england and the uh, the north of France is more like the south of England. Uh, would I be right in saying something like that? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, uh, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you get these kind of very very regional differences, uh, and you're absolutely right. There is a very strong kind of like north south divide. I think, especially in um, in in France, the the centre, um, as in Paris. Is always understood as a kind of uh, a magnet you know and um, that kind of sucks all the development and all the culture and all the activity and um, towards its its center and um, that's something that comes out of the French Revolution the idea of Jacobin centralism of uh, you know controlling the state from the center um, it's something which has you know long been a characteristic of, uh, of the French state and um, there's a book comes out in 1947 by a, a geographer called uh, Jean-François Gravier, um, and he calls it Paris and the French Desert. And there's this kind of um, you know criticism that you know the rest of the country is like a desert, while Paris is the oasis in the centre that draws everyone towards it. So very much there's a, a kind of regional divide between Paris as a centre of development and uh, and 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 the south as being kind of somewhere that's. Very different, but you're right. Um, there's there's a kind of, the south is often associated with a uh, maybe a more peasant identity. Um, it's often associated with uh, being a more kind of rustic place. Um, they're often kind of you know uh, at the moment the current prime minister of France, uh, Jean Castex, is uh, is from the south, uh, who has a, a very distinctive southern accent. Uh the um you know, a lot of the time and um, people will talk about you know like in like in Britain, people remark on regional accents, the southern French accent can be quite distinctive, a little bit more kind of uh Verde Blanc, um a little bit tang tang tang. Um but uh yeah. It's um it, i think, you know, you're not far off with uh, that kind of comparison. A bit like a kind of inversion of that uh, that British idea, you know, the the cultured, wealthy, kind of uh, sophisticated uh, South, perhaps against uh, an earthier, more rustic, more kind of down to earth uh, South, um, perhaps uh, in 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 France. Yeah,
0: and like that, the kind of industry in that area. Um, obviously, it's wine, uh, and there's a lot of fam- Like a lot of listeners will know, there's a lot of famous um, wines coming from this region. But how important was this wine industry to the region? Because uh, obviously there's there's a lot of wines coming from the south of France.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I've always found it quite a bit of a challenge sometimes when I'm talking to people about uh, about what I study. Because, you know, when you start talking about wine, and this is one of the interesting things, wine tends to be surrounded by a discourse of, uh, of luxury, of, um, you know, of uh, refined things and moustache twirling and all the rest of it. But down in the South, um, wine is produced not really as a star of the dinner table, but a staple, you know, um, and the industry is vastly important, has been vastly important throughout the 20th century. I often talk about it when I'm describing it to people and I think here your um, your point you made about the, the North and the South and the British comparison is probably valid because when I'm talking about it, I always describe, you know, wine in the Languedoc, uh certainly the early 20th century, as being like shipbuilding in, uh, in Glasgow or Newcastle. Um, to the extent that it's just you know it's absolutely central to the to the health of the area, and so when you do see difficulties um, for the industry and there are you know um, there are systemic and structural difficulties um, that emerge throughout the twentieth century, um, that really affects the whole region um, from those directly involved, but also kind of you know uh, auxiliary industries. Uh, early in the 20th century even things like barrel making and transport and you know all that kind of stuff it's um, it's a it's a really crucial industry at the time and and then in the paper you link
0: wine uh, with with rugby now obviously in, in the UK we've got this intrinsic link between rugby and and beer uh, but obviously mm. in in France there's a different drinking culture so how were they linked and what challenges were were both these these areas facing?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, I tend to 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 link uh ideas of um I think that that regional divide is is really important again when you talk about rugby. We tend to talk about you know in that in that paper I talked about uh, the chic de Paris contre le choc du midi, um the you know Parisian chic kind of cool rugby as it were you know a very refined uh, gentleman and all the rest of it versus the south which was you know to put it in a very simplistic way big uh, big blustery peasants um just knocking seven sides or whatever out of each other, um and that kind of uh, divide um really emerges from the way that rugby is introduced to France. Um, You know, in the the kind of uh, end of the 19th century, when rugby becomes big in Paris, it's very much this kind of, you know, Corinthian ideal. It's all kind of very well-to-do, you know, young university students who are talking about manners and rules and all the rest. Uh, In the South, it kind of comes in often through Often through uh, wine, uh, wine merchants, wine imports, uh, and you see the influence of, for example, Scottish wine merchants in Bordeaux um, introducing things like rugby as a kind of uh, as an interest, and really it spreads throughout um, the uh, the villages of the the south of France, um, largely following the. Uh, the 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 path of um of wine, you know. So certainly it does have a a whiff of wine corks about it, um when you're actually describing it. Um so, you know, rather than it being about uh you know, rugby school in Warwickshire and, you know, William Webb Ellis and all the rest of it there is in France a, a desire to look first of all at regional games that contribute to it but really also this introduction from about 1890 as it spread out from Bordeaux, Toulouse and Lyon in the south um, and that takes it away from being that uh, kind of individual um, kind of I guess you'd say individual kind of backs game if you know what I mean a winger's game which is what you imagine it being in, in Paris of the day towards being more again speak very loosely and um, more of a forwards game you know this uh when it moves to the south it is much more about um kind of heavy rolling uh rucks and malls and about the idea of kind of you know um yeah, a forwards game, as it were, um, an earthier peasant game, and that's really where you know. So first of all, wine uh, is important because it's one of the vehicles by which uh, rugby is, I guess, transmitted into France, and um, but then also it's. Um, it's part of the the kind of the culture. Um, you always think about uh, if you think back to, to Asterix. You know, uh, if you remember at the end of every Asterix strip, uh, at, at every Asterix book, um, they've got the bit where they all meet round the campfire. They've got the bard usually tied up, but they're all feasting on wild boar and having this big kind of knees up as a village. That's often. The theme in terms of French rugby, um, the idea of the kind of the third half, the troisième mi-tompe um, when you uh, essentially all get back together after knocking seven shades out of each other for a big knees up celebration at the end. So it's a kind of part of a convivial culture, it's part of um, something which is rooted in the area, it kind of spreads through the idea of um, wine country, it suits kind of peasant bodies if you will. Um, and uh yeah it kind of it becomes tied to this concept of of masculinity i think um especially in the south you know rugby is a very masculine sport and i think when you have big hulking guys that work in the fields um that often suits this this style of uh, rugby in the south um as it develops throughout the 20th century
0: yeah i think you definitely see that across england as well where you go to certain areas um i've particularly played rugby in some some farmer areas and you get a very different style of rugby to what you get down here in Chichester so I can I can definitely see how those links of regional identity play into it um, yeah. you know rugby is such a popular game um, why did it gain this popularity over say other sports in this region um, and then what did it start to to mean to these people because obviously it's it's very important in the way that you you experience your life. Uh, and you create bonds. So, yeah, why did it gain this this popularity over other things like football and so on?
1: Well, I think, you know, it does have a, a really important regional uh, success. It, it enjoys regional success because it is, again, like you mentioned, such a convivial game. It becomes something that the community can get behind. Um, it, it fits the idea of, of villages, of kind of, you know, village clubs, village teams. It fits the idea of... You know, it kind of ideas of uh, how it relates to uh, uh, how it relates to like the defense of territory, you know, the idea of the, the kind of défense du clocher, the defense of the clock tower. Um, in, you know, in uh, in French culture, the idea of the clocher, the kind of village town hall, kind of uh, uh, town hall and um, the kind of church spire, you know, the church bell um, is a bit like, you know, in, in London, people talk about the uh, Cockneys and you know being born within the thing where you can hear the bells, there's a sense of kind of emotional attachment to the um, the church bells of your home village and this idea that it connects to a sense of place and I think that's one of the reasons we start to see this kind of uh, concept coming together. Um, it's also because I think people are are good at it. You know, um, there is a, a kind of real um, success in the south um, throughout the early twentieth century. First of all, it's it's popular, but then also they see a lot of success both within France and internationally. And I think that really drives its uh, its popularity because you know um, people like successful sports. They like successful sports teams. It draws people into the game uh, when. Uh, club teams are successful, but also when the you know the international team is successful. And so you know the idea, the the way in which France has been tied into international rugby for so long is another example of um, you know things that draw people towards the game. I think. Yeah, and then so
0: a lot of these players were, were wine growers, and so on. Um, you know the terms of like what did wine mean to these rugby players in the south of France? Uh, was it just then? You know, it was a huge part of their identity, but it was something that set them apart from the rest of the country you know we we play rugby but our wine is who we are and our wine growing and our methods is what we do and how we see each- like see ourselves really
1: yeah I, I so i found uh one like so one of the reasons i essentially wrote the paper um was i found whenever i was looking into people in the south uh, it was like there was this kind of like Holy Trinity, you know, for somebody to make it in the region, to be successful as a kind of, you know, a, um, like a, polit- a politician or anything like that. There were always these kind of three touchstones they needed to have. And that was where the title came from. Uh, you know, you had guys, politicians, saying like, uh, je suis 15 et socialiste. 15 um, uh, you know, cans being rugby union, "trez" being uh, rugby league. But um, the idea was that people in the South seemingly to, to, to be a significant person, you know, in terms of politics, you had to be... You know, you had to earn your chops uh, to do with rugby, you had to earn your chops to do with wine, and you also had to earn your chops to do with left politics as well. And there was seemingly this kind of uh, trinity, you know, where all the, the big people I was looking at were kind of uh, constantly making reference to the fact that, you know, um, they were canzistes um, Socialist, and of course tied into wine-growing unions as well, which was the context I was looking at them in. So I think there's certainly something about it's used as a kind of formation. Um, in the paper as well, I use an example of... Um, how it kind of supports a a kind of uh, an image of masculinity Um, because you have these uh, newspaper articles. These are from the 1970s, mind, but, uh, you know, it showed a bunch of babies uh, and these were kind of kids who grew up to be international rugby players from the South. And it was on about the fact, you know, it says they weren't raised on mineral water. These are kind of sons of wine growers. They were raised on wine, all the rest of this kind of stuff, you know, so it, it kind of ties into this image of, of what it's going for. Um, I think it's important to note as well though that um, there are kind of downsides to that kind of hyper masculine uh, identity in the south and especially to do with rugby um, and one of them is uh, it's the reason that France is banned from international rugby for a while because of the the level of violence in the rugby of the south um, around about the kind of like mid to late uh, 20s into 1930s you know it's after um, the uh, then five nations um, in 1931. Um, sorry, I nearly said six nations that happened. <laughs> after the five nations in 1931, that it's um, that France is banned from international rugby for a number of years. Um, and that's really because um, of the the level of violence that's largely developed uh, around southern rugby in the 1920s and um, why because of again this shock uh, du midi you know the idea of powerful hard-hitting rugby and that relates to fan violence um, and I'm sure there's a fair bit of wine involved in that fan violence and <laughs> um, but also kind of violence on the field you know really uncompromising um, you know heavy hitting rugby that's understood as being about real kind of um, yeah, like hard-hitting rugby at that stage. And yeah, the bans come in, in 1931. Part of it's to do with uh, with violence. Um, and of course, there's a, a very strong um, representation of the uh, Southern players in the national uh, team. Uh, people like Jean Gallia become really important. Um, but then uh, also it's to do with amateurism as well and that's one of the big things because it's successful because of all these things i'm talking about with the um the kind of crossover between like um you know politics and business and all the rest of it. A lot of the club teams are kind of starting to try and pay players. They're starting to get you know it's big business. It draws crowds. You know that there is a a lot of money behind it. And at the time, rugby is an amateur game. It's, it values its amateurism very highly. Um, and that's one of the reasons that France gets banned. First of all, for the violence. Um, and second of all, because there are all these investigations into amateurism in the sport. And there's a real worry that uh, that you know. French rugby is kind of going in a kind of funny way, um, in terms of the the development of um kind of sham amateurism or kind of like hidden professionalism as well. There's a lot of crossover at that stage. So, like I say, there's you know specific styles of rugby there, um, and that can be really positive, really kind of um you know uh, vibrant. Um, but it can also be something that that has its downsides as well. I think. Yeah, well, you,
0: you mentioned a really cu- like couple of interesting points there that. I'd I definitely want to zoom in on a little bit more. So firstly you mentioned you mentioned rugby league. Um mm. now obviously we don't we don't look at France as a rugby league power now. Um I think there's only Catalan Dragons now who are based in the south of France. So what what role did rugby league play in all of this? Um and then you look at you look at the sham amateurism. Um and that's kind of the hit of globalization really. So what what kind of effect was was globalization starting starting to make? Um, on rugby in France in this period because obviously rugby is really valued like you said it's really valued its amateurism and it only really went professional uh, in the 90s so what what yeah. kind of effects were both of these to having
1: yeah I mean so I think uh, I mentioned that guy there Jean Galliat, um who's uh, I, I, I followed in that paper and um, talking about the team Quillon uh and um you know Jean Callias is a big player for Quinoa he's a second row um and he, he's a good example you know he's a, he's an outstanding international level rugby player um who's part of this kind of like southern you know um powerhouse but then the difficulty is once France is banned on the international uh scene that pushes a lot of those uh those Cairns players those the union players into rugby league and rugby league is seen at the time as being something which is you know a really uh, a big growth industry and somebody like Jean Galiard becomes a huge advocate for Três um, for rugby league um from uh from nineteen thirty-four. Um and so at the time uh Trez um, Rugby League is uh, a very, very influential competitor uh, to Rugby Union. France is readmitted into the international order in 1939, um, but of course there aren't many games played after no. 1939 because you know <laughs> Second World War and all sorts. But that does actually affect um, how rugby is played in France um, because there is this kind of uh, political intervention. The idea is that um, in the run-up to uh, the, the the start of the Second World War. Uh, from a purely sporting sense, um, Rugby Union has been on the decline um, because of that international ban, because of the flight of some of the key players to Trez because you know Trez is a faster game, it's a you know all the rest of it Um, and it really really boomed in France uh, Rugby League um, in the run-up to the Second World War but of course as we know um, during the Second World War uh, France falls in 1940 um, defeated by the Germans and you've got the the kind of the occupied Zone in the north and then the notion of free zone um, with the uh, collaborationist government run by by Vichy in the south. Um, now the weird thing is uh, that in the south, um, the Vichy government uh, actually, you know, goes and addresses itself to sport. It's one of the key ways they can try and uh, bring in uh, this this focus on what the. Uh, the shape of the nation will be you know they're not involved in the war anymore they're in armed neutrality but you know they think they can kind of define themselves in the sport field um, and that's one of the the odd things that happened they set up this uh, the Vichy government sets up this commission it's run by a guy called uh, Jean Barotra, um, who's a tennis player he won Wimbledon uh, I think in 1924 um, but he brings a bunch of people on board uh, people like uh, uh, Jep Pasco uh, who's a rugby union player from Perpignan Um you mentioned Catalan Dragons of course based in Perpignan as well um, and people like uh, Jean Ibernagaret as well and they start this kind of like investigation into what's going on in rugby um, in terms of how it's been you know uh, what's been going on with it and essentially they produce all these different uh, reports uh, and in October 1940 you know not long after the fall of France um, this report is released into sport and one of the things they say is that you know TRES, Rugby League has got to go, and um, they say effectively that it's a job, it's not a game, and um, that uh, there shouldn't be disunity in France's sport fields. Um, but the idea is also that you know rugby is tied to the land. It's a form of uh, the guy uh, Paul Wavanel, who's the guy that writes the report. He says you know it's it's a form of patriotism. He says to understand one's village is to understand France you know they talk about all this kind of stuff and so they ban rugby league Um, and Johnny Bernard comes out and he essentially says look rugby league is banned he said it will be quite simply deleted from French sport Um, and they legally ban rugby league Um, but then moreover um, what they then do is they take all the assets of clubs and organizations for rugby league and they give them to uh, rugby union clubs and so it's you know they literally take stadia they take uh, clubhouses they take all these things and they are kind of redistributed in that way so there's a kind of huge ideological attack Against uh, against Trez against Rugby League, um, which takes place, and that that you know it's fascinating to see that you've got this like really kind of political intervention um, in uh, in sport at this time, and of course that then favours Rugby Union and kind of really you know, um, uproots uh, Rugby League so that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have that same basis uh, for rebuilding after the war. So, you know, absolutely, Um, Trez uh, Rugby League is really really influential, a huge competitor for Union in the 1930s, however it is uprooted during the Second World War, literally uprooted so that its stadia are redistributed to Union players for political reasons Um, and that leads, you know, to this um, massive predominance of rugby union um, after the war as well um, and that really sets the tone for France to, to be dominated by uh, by union um, in the years that follow um, because it's the one that has uh, the institutions, it's the one that has the support, the infrastructure and all the rest of it. So there's a lot I think there of important reasons uh, that uh, rugby union becomes predominant in quite that same way. And you don't see quite the same focus on 13, um in France uh, at this time, um, for sure, yeah
0: and then the region kind of takes a a step leftwards politically as well so why why was why was socialism uh, particularly uh, kind of intrinsically linked to the region
1: um yeah sure so uh, immediately after the uh immediately after the um the second world war um there's a lot of kind of left politics in france you know, one of the reasons that General de Gaulle steps back from power is because of the inclusion of, like, the Communist Party, for example, in parliamentary politics, and the South because of its uh, heavy um, uh, its heavy focus on um, its heavy focus on uh, wine growing. Its heavy focus on uh, uh, wine growing cooperatives. Um, you know, essentially, people kind of uh, form these cooperative businesses, and there's a massive explosion in them in uh, the number of those um, in the post-war period. They become a vehicle for trying to kind of rebuild France's uh, France's agriculture, and so you've got a lot of emphasis on some of these, a lot of emphasis on some of these institutions. I think you would say of uh, of the south. Um, of what's actually going to be uh, the, um, what you call it? Uh, the, you get this model um, that people start to call deputy du Vin um, so in France the deputy is the equivalent of uh, an MP, um, the, the French Parliament is called the National Assembly and so for example um, somebody like Raoul Calat, um, Raoul Calat is often uh, a guy who is associated very strongly with this model of being a wine deputy, another person called uh, uh, Bayou is another kind of good example, but Kala, if we talk about him for a second, he's a really good example. Now, Kala is um, somebody that very strongly represents the wine growers, very strongly represents the south, um, and really talks about the heritage of the south as well. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot in my book is a huge uprising that takes place in 1907 um, down in the south, uh, the kind of the Grand Revolt. Um, where you get this huge uprising by wine growers um, protesting against what they see as fraud and kind of um, uh, like financial manipulation of the markets and stuff um, uh, due to a lack of regulation. Uh, and they blame kind of external forces and try and campaign for greater regulation, greater intervention and all the rest of it. Now, after the war, as I said, um, you get uh, a big focus on, on the left. And somebody like Calat is, is really kind of uh, a good example of that. Because Calat is a figure who um, he does something pretty, uh, pretty, um, pretty wild. Uh, in 1947 in France, uh, nationally, there are, uh, uh, there's a big wave of strikes. There's a general strike after the war um, by a lot of trade unions working together and um, pushing for you know, paying conditions and all the rest of it. Um, now Cala uh, sees this as a moment to try and uh, reinvoke invoke uh, the memory of 1907, that regional memory. And one of the big things that happens in 1907 is that uh, a regiment of soldiers defects to the side of the protesters, uh, the 17th uh, regiment. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a famous song about it which develops in the region, Gloire au 17 and um, Glory to the 17th. Um, And basically that's, you know, a kind of regional southern drinking song. It's the kind of thing you'd hear people singing. Uh, It's very strongly about the South. It's very strongly about resistance. It's about, you know, pride and it's about difference and all the rest. Now, uh, what happens is Kala in the National Assembly in Parliament, he takes to the Speaker's rostrum, the Speaker's uh, platform, um, and just starts singing "Gualo 17 e and occupies uh, the the Speaker's thing, trying to call on soldiers to join the strikers. Um, and he is uh, expelled from Parliament by soldiers and um, by the police um, uh, because he's seen as being like he's accused of trying to, you know, uh, like foment revolution or something from the actual platform and that kind of you know interesting kind of sense of how you see this southern identity, this leftist identity playing on the long heritage of resistance in the region is absolutely tied into the wine industry. So it's as I said at the start people draw their legitimacy from these kind of uh, legitimating uh, factors, wine, rugby, socialism, and you then see those people carry out you know things which make use of their own identity and they talk about the importance of that regional identity to uh, to their contemporary operations and echoes of that in moments like 1947 confirm the importance of the left to the south um and that's something that continues after the war for for a long time and uh, really up until the 1980s i would say
0: that was really like that that whole area um relations to politics and socialism i find quite interesting because in the in the uk the right, um like these these farm types tend to lean to the right sometimes especially mm. with um, the national farmers union um so you mentioned some organizations that protect the workers and the wine growers um what were these organizations uh, you mentioned a few in your paper and do they take any like illegal action to protect their own interests
1: yeah, absolutely. So um, certainly in the first instance, uh, there is a, a very strong um, kind of syndical scene, um, syndical, you know, essentially I'm talking about trade unions um, in France, um, and there's a lot of trade unions specifically relating to wine. Now, I won't go over all the, um, what called call it, the specific... Uh, machinations of the different unions and all the rest of it Um it's all in the book if you're interested um, but uh, basically there are a series of um, changes to uh, to wine growers uh, wine growers and wine laborers trade unions um, representing the broader sector uh, throughout the 1950s and they're all kind of constantly trying to to really outflank each other to the left now one of the things that changes is you've got all these various um, trade unions basically, uh, syndical organizations which are representing wine growers throughout the post-war period. What changes really is uh, the Algerian war um, which, you know, the Algerian war is a big conflict of decolonization in France, it's a huge um, kind of uh, political, social, cultural shift. You know, it's uh, France's conscription at the time. It's uh, basically uh, fifty four to sixty two, nineteen fifty four to nineteen sixty two. At the time, uh, Algeria is um, is technically part of France, territorially part of France, but effectively uh, a a colony of France. Um, It's during a kind of war of um, uh, anti anti colonialism, uh, an anti-imperial uh, conflict with um, led by the Front de Libération Nationale, the FLN, the Algerian Liberation Movement, who push back against um, French uh, rule. Um, now, anyway, the the it's a very bloody, very awful war. Um, but one of the big things, as I mentioned, conscription. But one in four families send a son to France, uh, son to Algeria uh, during that time from France, and that's a really, you know, it's it's transformative and. It changes things in the south as well, um, because uh, a lot of young guys go and do their trente mois, their thirty months um, kind of service, effective military service um, in Algeria in this quite dreadful conflict, you know, uh, and then come back to the same difficulties, the same kind of sales crises, the same structural problems, the same X Y Z that people have been talking about for a long, long time, and that really shakes up the trade union scene. And really from about 1961 um, towards the end of the Algerian war you have a series of uh, young um, uh, kind of young veterans effectively you know who've been out and done their uh, their tour of duty in Algeria come back come back to the same villages they left and they're in the same state they left and they look back at the, um, the people that were fighting in Algeria and say sometimes like Actually, do you know what? I identify maybe more with them than the guys up in Paris. And you get people at the time talking about these these you know wine radicals start talking about they they want to fight back. Uh, they say like the fellaha like the you know the rebels in Algeria like the fighters there, um, and they want to push back against the uh, the kind of uh, against Paris. And so really, you get the development of this organisation. This is who my book's all about: the Comité Regional d'Action Viticole, uh, the Crave. Um, the Regional Wine Action Committee that means Um, and basically you might see them basically as being the kind of of armed wing of the trade union movement. It's not an official organisation, it's the idea of a kind of uh, something that's kind of drawn up and formed at times of crisis, so it has a kind of episodic existence um, where it kind of is you know formed up by groups of people Uh, and it's the kind of thing where you get people spokespeople for the Krav constantly talk about the fact that they intervene when the situation is blocked Um, and so you get these guys essentially taking kind of direct action often uh, what they call commando action or guerrilla action um, against symbols of the state and so uh, often um, uh, these groups these uh, Kravists as we tend to call them people that belong to the Krav um, would be involved in um, for example uh protests uh which could involve kind of like one of the things they do is they intercept tankers of wine um so on the motorways they would run controls and intercept like um tanker and lorries uh, at ports like set and um, they might intercept tanker ships and they would either then um uh, d- empty, disgorge the um, the wine in those tankers or kind of damage or pollute it you know, uh, in some way, uh, they form burning barricades on train lines, they've uh, bombed uh, offices of political parties, things like electricity substations, they've targeted uh, wine merchants and blenders as well, um, I mean merchants not in the sense of the British sense of a, a shop if you know what I mean but like um, people that kind of blend and package uh, wine and release it under different labels um so they've, they've been quite an active force and um, They're a force that has been, as I said, episodic in nature, but certainly still a, a, an active force for quite a long time that starts about 61 and, you know, it's really still going today. Um, you can see kind of uh, more recent action as well. So there are kind of, uh, there's, there's legitimate um, forces to, to represent wine growers, um, but there's also kind of illegitimate forces as well who try and kind of intervene when that situation's blocked and try and kind of change the tenor of that conversation to draw uh, greater intervention on that front. And the interesting thing is a lot of those guys, um, a lot of those spokesmen for the Cav um, are themselves, you know, former rugby players, are people with backgrounds and all the rest of it uh, in uh, in, uh in rugby people like Andre Caz who's one of the the kind of key figures as well one of those kind of young veterans that comes back uh, he himself is that I think he's a fly half but he's you know you get all these different guys come back and they've all got those you know um, that uh, like I said that those kind of legitimating factors of the south they're all uh, uh they're all socialist, and they're all kind of tied into uh, to wine growing as well whether they're vignerons or they're actually um, you know just what part of that wider scene so it kind of it all flows together in the south in that way i think it's a really um a really interesting combination of those things
0: yeah and obviously these these movements are are reactionary uh to changes in the the area uh in in your in your paper you have this really nice um graph or chart really which looks at the changing nature of uh wine grower Wine plot ownership? Uh, would mm. that be like an effect of globalization or the economy in the area?
1: Yeah, so there's uh, there's a number of reasons that, uh, that things change. Um, essentially, for a long time, the uh, the kind of the fundamental reality of wine in the south is that too much basic wine is being produced. Too much basic drinking wine is being produced. Um, more than can be sold effectively, and as France uh, continues to uh, to open up to the world through European integration, through you know the, the you know um, things like global trade and all the rest of it, um, it starts to import other wines as well. It starts to be involved in things like the Common Agricultural Policy, which you know uh, brings wine into its purview. Um, Uh, kind of in the in in the 1980s as well, like when you start to see many more controls around what's happening in this Um, and it's kind of part of France's opening up um, which uh, is part of the issue and that's one of the demands that you see cravists make you know they say well we produce we produce this much wine if it's not selling then we should stop all imports Um, and that's the kind of you know that's the kind of demand which in some ways is you know kind of common sense I guess but it's also functionally impossible for the state to kind of pull out of all its international obligations um, for the favour of a regional industry and that's the kind of the tragedy of it in some ways. Um, So there are, uh, I think, um, it is a function of um, opening up to the world, It's a function of engaging in global markets, it is a function of changing tastes, uh, changing kind of structures of wine, there's been some fantastic stuff, there was a really good book written just recently, about a guy called uh, Joseph Bowling, um, called The Sober Revolution, um, which is a fascinating um, look at uh, uh, kinda anti-alcoholism uh, campaigns in France and abstinence campaigns in France and about how this kind of focus, th- there's a lot of pressures on uh, French wine growers um, throughout the post-war period to produce less wine and produce better wine. And that's very much the focus um, throughout this kind of structural transformation. Now that doesn't necessarily work well for the kind of the uh, the kind of productivist sector of the the Languedoc. There are lots of people there who work in the kind of um, you know kind of quasi agro industry type. Um, Uh, kind of sector um, that actually it becomes quite challenging in that sense for that that transition to happen and I mentioned things like you know um, the transformation of, of, of wine holding uh, Transformation of landholding. Excuse me, sorry. Um, that uh, some of that comes from uh, organisations like the SAFER, uh, which are to do with like landholding and about kind of different types of land tenure and what happens when land is sold to try and retain it within local communities. Um, some of that is to do with uprooting programmes, um, and there are kind of uh, a huge ramping up of uh, uprooting programmes from the mid nineteen eighties, and that's really tied with ideas of European integration. Now, what I mean by uprooting programmes is essentially um, there are funds made available um prime d'arrachage définitif the pad uh P-A-D, PAD. excuse me um which is about um essentially paying people uh, to uh, arracher to tear up their vines to grub them up um uh, definitively um and You essentially pay them uh, a lump sum uh, to do that because that that reduces the production, the volume of wine that France is producing, which better helps stabilize the market for others. But of course, you know, when you're talking about uh, uh, a rooted, like literally rooted uh, regional industry, rooted with the vines, and then you are uprooting it it's not just an economic transaction that's taking place, it's a structural transformation, but it's also a shift in identity. And there's a big issue, I think, around people pushing back against the the, the impact on um, people's identity as, you know, the economic activity of that region changes, Uh, and a real sense for many people that they are being Sidelined or kind of cut out of a type of development, that there's a type of modernization which people come to associate with you know trends of globalization, with trends of kind of you know um neoliberalism and kind of ideas like that that people see as being kind of profoundly negative. Um, and that, that's I think how you would tie it into it. So there are kind of specific ways in which it ties into the opening up of the French economy and markets, but also, um uh, I think uh kind of uh kind of political identity issues as well, you know
0: yeah um you know, i find that whole that area really quite interesting it's been it's been quite a uh distinct region within France for hundreds and hundreds of years, and you talk a lot about identity for the south, which is quite important for them um mm-hmm. and obviously i've I've done a video on the Albigensian crusade. And they start. Sure, sure. You've mentioned in your paper that they start. They start using the symbol, like symbolism, from the past. So the the symbols of the Cathars, uh, previous Albigensian symbols, and you mention a, a rise in Okatani or Long Doc nationalism. So like that nationalism, how does that that come out politically um, within this period?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, um, uh, Occitanism is uh, focused around, obviously, the, the Languedoc in terms of its area. It specifically focuses on the use of the Occitan language, which is very widespread um, at the start of the 20th century, becomes less so as uh, centralised schooling and all the rest of it um, kind of, um, you know, need more young people not to, uh, to learn Occitan and so on. Um, and you're right, yeah. The the symbols of uh, of that past are kind of constantly thrown up. So I mentioned 1907 before, and um, the guys that that lead that Ernest Perroul and Marcelin Albert, and um, those kind of uh, the the leaders of that 1907 revolt. You know, they speak in Carcassonne beneath the kind of city Médieval, the you know the walled city, and they all talk about the Albigensian Crusade. They talk about the idea, you know, um, that. Like those guys they're standing there resisting um the barons of the north, but the difficulty you have is you know what they talk about is the uh you know an albigensian crusade the barons were literal barons yeah. um, but uh you know they talk about in nineteen o seven they're talking about barons of industry um and that's the same kind of idea you know they talk about um the same kind of division uh essentially as being kind of tied to those things, and you see it you know throughout. Uh, this period. Um, there's a big relaunch I think of Occitanism, um as a political project which happens in the 1960s there's a lot more kind of sociologists and um, there's a lot more kind of intellectuals um, who engage with it and it starts getting tied to kind of new left issues especially. Um, so it gets kind of uh, revitalized I think in the 1960s um, and tied to kind of quite important causes like the wine growers and um, things like the Larzac movement uh, you know, minor strikes like De Casville um, in in nineteen sixty two, or um, yeah, you can name a lot of different struggles. But um, there's a kind of uh, a sense that it's revitalised as a political movement at that stage, um, and that that kind of uh, fits into a kind of uh, a resistant. Um, kind of identity really. There is a bit of kind of Occitan politics and there's kind of uh, you know there's some kind of autonomous movements. The difficulty you have um, with uh, Occitanism as a political movement is that uh, it doesn't have a defined territory in the same way that some other places have because you know Occitanie was never an actual political unit Um you might class it as being kind of roughly analogous to the lands of the counts of Toulouse um, or you might see it as being everywhere that Occitan was spoken um, there are difficulties in terms of having an autonomous movement which calls for half of France uh, to be given a, a separate political identity there's a kind of I think most people would see in that a kind of um a, a problem of realism <laughs> you see what I mean yeah. uh you know the the french state's not going to say right fine you have um the 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 more half um but uh I think there are kind of campaigns certainly for a lot more decentralization a lot more um uh, allowances to be made for the protection of regional culture and um, for the uh, the protection of minority languages um, within France's culture and that's been a real sticking point I think um, in contrast to, as we mentioned before, um, that kind of centralising character of the French state. So, Oxenism has been, especially in the post-war period, a kind of function of broadly leftist politics and um, but it has kind of travelled uh, and it's certainly an interesting uh, vehicle through which a lot of people have expressed re- uh, resistance uh, to the central state, I think. Yeah,
0: and then, and then just, just heading back to rugby and its, uh, its regional connections. Obviously, you see mm. globalisation hit post-1995 um, and the kind of professionalisation of the game in, in France, particularly the south as well um is there like has the south how's it adapted to this period uh with the influx of foreign players and are there still those regional connections with like between people and their clubs because obviously you have Toulon building that you know galactico style rugby you have Toulouse dominating french rugby for large periods of time but these these teams have foreign players i think at one point i could name more south african and for australian and english players in the toulon team than i could french so <laughs> uh, how did how's that how's that adapted
1: yeah it's an interesting thing isn't it because um you're right that 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 obviously changes uh ideas of how um how teams represent that kind of rooted nature you know Um how they represent that kind of sense that they are you know it's the défense du clocher like and all that kind of stuff and I think you know you're absolutely right you can't necessarily say in the same way that it tends to represent the same local lads defending the village and all the rest of it but that's that's something that's been going on really since you know well I mean you know you talk about ideas of globalization of course like all this other stuff like you know it's the kind of 87 World Cup isn't it that really marks that kind of moment after um, which rugby is, you know, basically a professional sport um, yeah. uh, and understood as being such. And it becomes much more global after that stage as well. Um, I think it does uh, still have a, a really important um, influence, uh, really, on on people. And people do take on um, the the kind of uh, the atmosphere of it, you know. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Carcassonne aren't really a kind of... Um, Top level team, you might not say, you know, no. um, but like you look at their kind of fans groups called the Les Heretics, um with a reference back to uh, the idea of the um, uh, the reference back to the idea of the Albigensian Crusade. Um, but there are all sorts of kind of international players uh, who've gone on uh, to, to to play in uh, in the south um, and and uh, really taken on a, an image of. Um, of what it means um, to be in the South and um, there are all kinds of you know like you had Kiwi players when they first came across and South African players when they first came across um who kind of took on something of um, this, uh, what would you say, this kind of um, uh, kind of culture, really, of the South, and this culture of Southern rugby, this idea of what's represented by um, kind of uh, the rugby de voyage, you know, this kind of Languedocian, uh, this you know, um, Languedocian rugby, um, as it were. Um, I, I think I mentioned some uh, somewhere uh, in the uh, the article as well I think it's Keys van der Mer um, who uh, you know talks about the idea that he becomes this kind of champion of a different type of rugby a different a different sense of rugby um, and you know starts to represent it really on that basis I think the idea the quite intense fan cultures the kind of the, the key support for all of these things and um, is something really that, um, that that sweeps people along with it and um, I mentioned as well uh, one the things I, I quote in the article is um, the guy John Daniel um, who played for Montpellier, um, there's a quote from him in there uh, from his autobiography which he really talks about this idea of taking on that culture, I can read you the quote just now because yeah. it gives you a kind of a good sense of it, I think, which you know addresses exactly what you're saying, like this sense of like you know players going there and and getting it, you know, um, and I think there's a real sense of that that when players connect with the fans in French rugby, you know, it doesn't matter where they're from, they're from that place, you know. Uh, so John Daniel talks about it in his autobiography. He says, and I quote: "I've already mentioned the, I won't do the accent. Uh, I've <laughs> already mentioned the French idea of l'esprit de clocher, the credo of collective duty to the town, the team, and the jersey." The peculiarity of the French version of Pride in the Jersey is that it manifests itself much more strongly when you play at home. At home, the team is like the local militia, entrusted with a sacred duty of repelling the invaders and upholding the honour of the town, and everyone is watching. The highly developed sense of geographical awareness is linked to another very French idea, that of terroir, the notion that a product draws its identity from the soil in which it's produced and its character from the culture that surrounds it. So that idea there for somebody like John Daniel, a kind of Kiwi uh, players who's come into play in Montpellier, it draws on a language of wine to kind of talk about how it takes on the culture of its production, it takes on this idea of representing the fans and representing the local area and you see that develop right across rugby I think from this sense that you know it's something which has a kind of strong fan culture around it, it has its own kind of traditions, it has its own kind of regional traditions as well. And this idea of really kind of stonking southern rugby is one that is, uh, you know, continues to be important and continues to win people round to it as well, as you can see in that description by, uh, by John Daniel. Yeah, well thank you very much Day, I've, I've really enjoyed learning
0: more about this outside of your article as well Andrew um yeah no problem yeah and and then where where can our listeners find you and keep up to date with you
1: um well as you know i'm a teacher at the university of chichester um i do uh, i've got a twitter account uh where you can uh, find out more stuff um that i'm doing in a a blog as well um my twitter account is at smidbob um and uh, my website is uh, awmsmith.com oh no sorry uh, it's andrewwmsmith.com um, I always include my initials, just because there's a thousand yeah. Andrew Smiths in the world. Um, but I've got a, a blog on there as well, where I uh, sometimes put up things about uh, often the material I come across when I'm, when I'm teaching, um, and kind of things that I've uh, been working on as well. Um, so yeah, you can find me on Twitter, um, or you can find some blog posts that I've written, um, some of which are about uh, ideas of rugby as well. Uh, I think I wrote something about the first Rugby International as well, uh, and connections to it, But uh, but yeah.
0: And... In true History of Jackson fashion, we, well, I tend to recommend books for our readers if they want to learn more on the subject. So what would you recommend if anyone wants to get stuck into this subject a bit more? Um,
1: yeah well uh, I mean so uh, well I mean I'll be I'll be cheesy and say you can obviously read my book um, <laughs> which is uh, it's called Terror and Terroir uh, The Wine Growers of the Languedoc and Modern France um, and that's published by Manchester University Press uh, and it's out in paperback as well so it's not just uh, ludicrously expensive as uh, some academic books are um, but uh, that's out there if you fancy a read about uh, wine terrorism um, in particular about uh, French rugby and um, there's a book by Philip Dine um, called French rugby football a cultural history and that is an absolutely outstanding book i think that um is really really interesting um and you'll find a lot of really useful stuff about um within that uh that that i think is uh, that's one of the key references if you wanted to find out more about uh, rugby in France um, Philip Dine's book is 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 really excellent um uh, uh what else would i recommend um uh, there's some good stuff on. I'm trying to think of things in English as well. Nah, yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. uh, I mentioned uh, I mentioned Joseph Bowling's book, uh, The Sober Revolution. I think that's a really interesting one about um, about wine that's recently been written. Um, likewise, I recently reviewed a book by uh, Venus Bivar, B I V A R, called Organic Resistance, um, which is all about kind of the reforms to uh, to farming in France. Uh, and I'm also, um, I've just very, very recently, as in like just a couple of days ago, sent off a review of a very recent release um, by uh, Sarah Farmer, um, which is called Rural Inventions, the French Countryside after 1945. Um, and those kind of give you a good sense of the the way and the field around um, the kind of transformation of the countryside um, and about how we can understand um the importance of the countryside to the French state, to French identity, um, but also understand some of its tensions as well and the rich political um, things we can find within that. Yeah, and uh, I know you've recently
0: uh, published Britain, France and the Decolonisation of Africa, Future Imperfect, with uh, Chris Jepsen. I'd really recommend that book if anyone else wants to go and have a quick look at that one. I think it's on UCL Press, if I'm right.
1: Yeah, so that means it's free as well. That one's open access. Um, so yeah, it's an edited volume that I wrote with a friend, Chris, that I used to teach with at UCL. Um, and uh, it kind of covers the, the end of empire. Um, so it's a kind of work of, it's really kind of imperial history, if you know what I mean. It's mostly looking at uh, how the French state tries to kind of complicate and deal with. Uh, some of those issues uh, of the end of Empire um, but yeah it was really a lot of fun to write there's some interesting ideas in there um, so yeah certainly worth a read. I, I've written a couple of articles um, just in the last year as well um, there's one on the 10th anniversary of D-Day in 1954 and all the kind of uh, discussions around that it's quite a fun story that one um, because it's essentially all about uh, commemoration that goes wrong. Um, and then there's another one that deals with the south of France again um, which is all about kind of contextualizing the election of a far-right mayor in the town of Béziers, of course a uh, big rugby town as well, a uh, big wine town as well, and about how we get to a stage where you can see a mayor who stands on a Front National ticket, now the Rassemblement National of course, um, but uh, and gets elected, understanding some of those kind of political ambiguities about Identity about roots, about all the other things around it, and that kind of passage from left to right. I think that's a, a place where I think your comparison earlier on about the, the north of England and the south of England can really be uh, useful in terms of understanding that.
0: Brilliant. And then one, one last fun one. Um, of course, a lot of our students are... Uh, not students, listeners are either students or um, they tend to be a bit older in professional life or retired. Uh, if you had to recommend some wines for all three groups... Uh, what would you recommend? <laughs>
1: um, well, I'm always uh, always a big fan of a F I T O U. That's a uh, uh, kind of uh, appellation from the the uh, f- from the Oud um, Fito, Minervois, uh, corbiere and um, some some excellent appellations that I always find uh, you can get some value in. Um, I think it's. Uh, a lot of people tend to shy away from uh, buying French wine because there's always the the sense that they can get kind of a better value if they're buying New World stuff. But I think especially if you're kind of sampling the wines of the South, a Feteu Minervois Corbiere, you'll find a lot more value and um, for a big punchy red. Um, or again, if you want to drink white uh, from the the South of France, Pique Picpoul de Pinay, um, uh you'll get different brands in different places. There's uh, you know they're they're not um, uh what do you call it um uh they're not uh, rare wines shall we say yes. um but uh they are uh phenomenal uh in terms of uh in terms of a drink. So um yeah that's the, the appellations I tend to go. fitou and corpire, and maybe a little peak pool de Pinet as well. Um if you are talking about it. But yeah.
0: Oh, brilliant and thank you very much again for coming <laughs> on today Andrew. I've really appreciated it and I've I've learnt so much more so thank you very much.
1: Excellent, no problem at all. I'm happy to be here and thank you very much, Jackson. Cheers.